Hey everybody, I'm Dan from Portland, Oregon. I'm Kate from Minneapolis. I'm Zach from Madison, Wisconsin. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and please click on Donate. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is Kevin Klein. He's one of the stars of the film The Extra Man, which has just premiered here at the Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah. He's also won most of the awards you can win for being an actor. He's one of the few people who has won an Oscar uh, for a comic role. Um, he does not yet have a Cable Ace Award, but um, I think that may be in his future. He may even get one retroactively for one of his films uh, running on cable. Um, in The Extra Man, he plays uh, a, an eccentric and delightful older gentleman um, who lives in spectacularly beautiful squalor in a walk-up in New York City. Um, Kevin, welcome to The Sound of Young America. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. When I was reading about uh, when I was reading about your life growing up, I read a, a passing mention of the fact that your uh, father owned a record store, which later became a candy and record store. No, no, toy, toy, toy and record, record store. Yeah. Um, no, I still have my teeth. You're you're the appropriate age where he he opened the record store in the in the early forties before you were born, but you're of the appropriate age where like record store is like the single coolest thing ever. Yeah. Like yeah. the record explosion that happened in the 1950s was, you know, your childhood, and then the um, rock and roll music becoming the, you know, incredible countercultural force is your like adolescence. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it like to to have a dad that owned a record store during during that time? It was very interesting because my father was a well, he had actually studied to be an opera singer, and was a, was a great lover of music and. Um, and he liked jazz and popular music. Um, but I grew up with opera and a lot of symphonic music and whatever, chamber music, always sort of going in the house. Every Saturday, would, the opera would be broadcast from the Met, and that would be blaring out from the radio. And um, so what was funny is that I played in a rock and roll band. I also was studying classical piano. But uh, my father was... And he liked some. I mean, he liked the Beatles. He thought this was, but he wasn't crazy about rock and roll. And um, it was funny because I, I still meet people on the streets of New York saying, "You know, I used to go into your father's store, and your father introduced me to classical music, and he weaned me away from rock and roll." Um, he was sort of. Um, he, he didn't mind that people liked rock and roll, but he wanted to introduce them to good music. So he was always sort of holding forth and say, well, listen to this, listen to this. But he had a great musical ear. People would call him and say, I heard something on the radio, a little, and they could just hum a little snatch or something. Oh, yes, that's the Mozart uh, G minor second movement, measure 226. D- did it make it difficult to uh, be a rebellious teenager in a rock and roll band when your dad was was okay with it? I was, um, I was, I was, rebellious in an insidious kind of passive-aggressive, <laughs> quiet way, mostly in school. And I guess with my parents, I, I tended to use humor as a um, 
as a weapon, which got me in a lot of trouble in school um, on a fairly daily basis. Um, <laughs> but it, just, it, was thing, it was a thing about authority, something I thought about because it's I sort of do the same thing with certain directors I work with. It's it's well, who made the teacher boss? Why does why does he get to make all of the uh, you know sort of authoritative choices here? Why is the director? You know, we're all here together. Let's work this out. What kind of what kind of insidious, uh, passive aggressive activities were you getting into that were getting you in trouble on a daily basis? I was a wise wise cracking in class, and um, <clears throat> I went to a very strict school run by Benedictine monks from Ampleforth Abbey in York, and so it was sort of like an English school where we wore ties and coats, and, you know, jackets and had to stand up when the master came in the room and there was corporal punishment, things like that. And we thought that was cool because it was different. Um, but it, it's like making a joke in church. It's, it's easier in a way. It's a cheaper joke. But when you have a very strict teacher who's demanding absolute silence and, um, or, well, whatever, and you just kind of break the silence with asking an inane question, when did you decide that you were absolutely positively going to be an actor? And what kind of actor did you imagine yourself to be when you decided that? Well, it's only recently that I think I've <laughs> finally settled into it. No, but you for always years, wanted to be an opera singer. If no, I'm no, not I, I did want to be. I went to to, to college to study music, um, and um, ended up in theater. Uh, and and but being a musician first, or, or uh, an aspiring musician, you know, one didn't call oneself a musician unless you achieved a degree of musicianship. <laughs> you know, that was the highest compliment. Said, now that, you know, he's or she's a real musician. Listen, listen to her play. Um, so then when I became an actor, when people said, oh, you're an actor. I said, well, I'm an aspiring actor. And I, I was sort of, uh, you know, I thought, well, I know you don't call yourself an actor until there's some degree of mastery. Uh, so it was probably about uh, when I started doing Broadway. Um, I thought, I guess when other people hired me other than the acting company, which is where I started, John Hausman was the director of the Juilliard School, and he went. I was in the first graduating class, and he didn't want us to go off and do television and movies. So he said, I'm going to keep you all together as a company, and we're going to tour the country and do the classics. And this was great training. I spent four years doing that. Um, There's a company that, that still exists. Oh, yes, yes, and flourishing. And... Um, uh, my point being what that that training I think even though because it came out of the school I still wasn't sure I said well I just I got lucky I happened to be in the right class at the right time so it wasn't you until I started getting happened to be in Juilliard <laughs> well yeah yeah that's true which I thought well, there must be some mistake um, but I'll, I'll I'll go with it was, and so I wasn't sure till I really got hired a few times by people that sort of didn't have to hire me. I thought, maybe there's something in this. When you switched your ambition from uh, musician to actor, and I imagine that you had to have a reasonably focused ambition to apply to and be accepted to uh, Juilliard, probably the most uh, prestigious acting school in the country. Um, Did you imagine yourself, like, uh, you know, treading the boards, performing the works of the bard? Uh, Or do you imagine yourself singing the Pirates of Penzance? Never. Or being the next Don Knotts? A little of each and none of the above. No, it was um, – it wasn't a, an aspiration or, or an ambition. It was an obsession. It was my life. I, I just had to act. 
Um, so I, th I think it, Juilliard helped, but I, I went to Juilliard to become a classical actor because that was the, it was this brand new school and they were focusing on style and classics and you know the, the Western you know the great works of the of the Western canon and um, I said yeah that's that's the stuff I like that stuff um, that that was my focus and I guess I thought yeah for a while I thought I would be just a theater actor and then when I started working in the theater and I um, I thought well this seems to be my niche and the films are not, no one's saying calling, just come to Hollywood and be in movies. No one did that. So I thought, okay, this is it. And it was actually Pirates of Penzance, which I agreed to do because, well, just be four weeks in Central Park outdoors. And it's, and I'd never heard Gilbert and Sullivan until I played the score and it made me laugh. And I thought the music was beautiful. I thought, well, how bad can this be? But then a year's run on Broadway and then a film and all that. Um, it was not what I, set out to do but because of it Joe Papp uh, the producer said you know you, you've really got the right instrument for you should be doing Shakespeare I said well uh, Joe in fact that's why I'm here that's what I really want to do I did not set out to do Gilbert and Sullivan which I always sort of thought of that scene in the Woody Allen film Bananas where they're torturing a guy and trying to get him to confessed or yeah. just you know give us some information but he's tied to a chair and they're forcing him to listen to Gilbert and Sullivan uh that was my association with it um but uh, I, yeah then I the more Shakespeare I so he gave me Richard III to cut my teeth on and um <laughs> and I had a wonderful time and then that led to more Shakespeare Joe was wonderful because he would come backstage opening night or after the first preview okay so what are we going to do next how about much ado about nothing next summer or, or yeah okay and he would exact a commitment and it was um it was very paternal and um it was of course nice to feel wanted but i always had that which kind of kept me in the theater um a lot and and also gave me a place to go back to the theater when i started doing film which was right after pirates of penzance it's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actor Kevin Klein. We spoke at the Sundance Film Festival in Park City after the premiere of his new film, The Extra Man. One of his first film roles was in the musical comedy The Pirates of Penzance. In this scene, Klein, as the pirate king, is bidding farewell to a crew member. Frederick, don't swim. Take the dinghy. And when your process of extermination begins... Let our deaths be as swift and painless as you can conveniently make them. I will. By the love I have for you, I swear it. Oh, would that you could render this extermination unnecessary by accompanying me back to civilization. No, Frederick. It cannot be. I don't think much of our profession, but contrasted with respectability, it is comparatively honest. No, Frederick. I shall live and die a pirate king. Pirates of Penzance was um, uh, adapted into a, a film in which you were also featured in the early 80s. That, that I think, was the first one that you made. The first one that came out was Sophie's, Sophie's Choice, Choice right. which was another uh, acclaimed role. Was it, was it difficult or scary at all at, at the age of, you know, you were already in your mid-30s um, 
by the time you started doing this stuff. Mm. Um, was it difficult or scary to do this whole new kind of thing? Stage very, acting, stage very, acting, and film acting are very different. Well, that's what I went into my first two movies. I mean, I always, I always discount Pirates of Penzance because we basically filmed the production. In fact, the director who had directed us on stage, he said, I don't want, there's no, this is theater, this do exactly what you did, don't. Um, in fact, I, I was, I had to go right from that the day after we wrapped that. I went into Sophie's Choice and he kept saying, save the acting for Sophie's Choice. I want performance, you know. And so we just, it wasn't really like making a movie. Sophie's Choice was like what I thought was making a movie, shooting out of sequence, no rehearsal, all those things like things like cameras sticking in your face, all that. You know. Just just sometimes performing without the other person that you're performing in a scene with there, or having them on the other side of a camera, or something like that. Those are things that can that can be incredibly difficult yeah. for an actor. Yeah, I, luckily when I first when I left the acting company uh, four years after finishing Juilliard. Um, I vowed, of course, I'll never do a commercial and I'll never do a soap opera. And, you know, that's how you develop bad habits, blah, blah, blah. And I did a couple of commercials and a soap opera uh, <laughs> because I was starving. Uh, that sounds a little more dramatic than it should. I, uh, the soap opera, really, I learned a lot. I just did a year. I just played a little recurring role that showed up occasionally. But I got used to having, you know, three cameras pointed at me. I got used to improvising. And I learned a lot about writing because we rewrote everything. Um, the actors, you know, early on, oh, no, you have to say what's written, just, you know, do it. And so I would re learn, learned a lot that yeah. has continued to help me in the film. I've, I've heard from actory friends that the, one of the things about a soap opera is that you just kind of have to do it. Like there's no, there's no, um, I'm sort of, try, yeah, you, you don't get to, passage. you don't get to, you don't get to, uh, you don't get to like do a lot. There's no very little preparation. Oh my God. You're just sort of like thrown into everything. You just kind of have to learn to just go to town. And it's, and it's for the most part, just wretched material. I mean, highly expositional. You can't say, Hi, Joe. It has to be, hi, Joe, how are you? I haven't seen you since the uh, the pregnancy and the plane crash and, and, your, and your uncle's death. It, because in case someone missed the last week, you have to update them. So there's, it's not how people talk. It's a very – it's like Gilbert – it's as stylized in this way as Gilbert and Sullivan. And those are kind of things where you say something, you say, well, I'm not going. And the camera just lingers on you while the, and they do the stinger that – on the organ and you – know. I'd like to say some more, but you know, you know, the camera just lingers on you. you I like to imagine got egg all over your face, and that's, the, that's part of the style. Just off stage. That's how. It, listen, in the radio days, uh, one of the actors on the, the soap I did, Search for Tomorrow, had been there since the early days of radio and live television. He told great stories how they had rehearsed a phone ringing, for example, and he got used to just miming the phone and picking up. Yes, hello, and then of course they're rolling. It's live, and he does this. Hello. And realizes there's no phone in his hand, <laughs> and had to kind of wing it from there. But um, yes, it it's it's sort of you're sort of thrown you're, you're, into it. You're yeah, it's, it's sink or swim. It's interesting to me too that you, your for, your first two major film roles were already so spectacularly divergent. I mm, mean, yeah, I was very lucky that it would be difficult moment. to make two more different kinds of films than Sophie's Choice in a film version of The Pirates of Penzance. Um, when you had, when you had made well, no, those, it's funny if I may interrupt sure. because 
it was seeing me in Pirates of Penzance that the director of Sophie's Choice, Alan Pakula, he saw that and cast me. And I said, you saw Pirates of Penzance and you want me to play this role? Okay. And he said, you are the very model of a modern major general. No, he said uh, there, were, there was just something in, that, in the outrageousness of the, of the pirate king that he preferred for uh, the character of Nathan uh, rather than a brooding, you know, internalized. Uh, he was out there that character and very exuberant. Um, the, real, the, the real lucky thing for me was then doing The Big Chill, which was playing this normal, normal guy after playing this wacko. Um, and I think that kind of helped break. I thought, oh, God, if I, I just don't want to play crazies all my film career. And, and that kind of put a stop to that. It must have been it must have been really something to be in the big chill and not just be like a normal normal guy, but you know the the big chill, you know, is sort of like I don't I I can there are so few parallels, but maybe reality bites might be half a parallel. But this kind of generationally defining movie where yeah. all of a sudden you are the representative for everyone that is roughly your age. Well, yes, but we did not know that while we were making it. We just, I mean, it was a lovely script and unusual and interesting. And we rehearsed for four weeks, which is unheard of in a film, just rehearsing just to, so that there, so that in the body language, there was this familiarity among us and between us, um, kind of all over us actually. Um, and, um, it was just fun to do. That's what's great about the outdoors. You know, it's one giant toilet. Maybe you should, uh, Put a spot like this in your club. This thing's going to be big, Harold. You should take it more seriously. You know, you'd have your own table waiting at all times. I'm considering the investment. I've always wanted my own table. Right, right. Uh-huh. Now, I'd have, a, I'd have a chair, too, right? It's the Sound of Young America from PRI, Public Radio International. Production of the Sound of Young America is underwritten in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Max FunCon is MaximumFun.org's annual convocation of things that are awesome. You can join me and dozens of great teachers and performers for a weekend in a retired hunting lodge in the woods this May here in Southern California. We'll have comedy from Mark Marin, Al Madrigal, Maria Bamford, Jimmy Pardo, Casper Hauser, Elephant Larry, and more. Plus talks from author and comic John Hodgman, rocker Andrew W.K., and Radio Lab's Jad Abumrad, among others. And classes on everything from crafting to improv to the art of the cocktail. For more information on Max FunCon, visit MaxFunCon.com. That's MaxFunCon.com. But remember that slots fill up fast. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Kevin Klein. We spoke at the Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah, after the premiere of his new film, The Extra Man. He's one of a select few actors who won an Oscar for a comedic role. It was for his work in A Fish Called Wanda. Here he is in an early scene from that movie. He's posing as Jamie Lee Curtis's brother as she introduces him to a stuttering character tending to some fish, played by Michael Palin. Hi, Ken. Hello, Wanda. Ken, this is Otto. Hello, Ken. Wanda's told me a lot about you. Hey, great fish. Oh, a little squeeze of lemon, some tartar sauce, perfect. George back yet? Uh, no, he had to go to the bar. What? Oh, that's uh, quite a stutter you've got there, Ken. (laughs) 
It's all right. It doesn't bother me. Uh, so, uh, George needs a weapons man, eh? A cup of tea, Ken? Yeah, he'd like one. I had a good friend in the CIA had a stutter. Cost him his life, damn it. Um, some of your biggest successes were in relatively broad comedy. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, you you had that rare distinction of having won an Oscar for playing a really, like, a broad comic part, which is an amazing distinction, um, a, a really funny, like, crazy thing. Um, yeah. Was it... Uh, was it a goal of yours to get to do that, to get to bring all this acting skill that you had to bear onto something that was less quote unquote serious? Or was it happenstance that you, um, that you ended up being this, uh, you know, your, your biggest star moments have been in, have been in kind of happy comedies. Mm. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I had done comedies, broad comedies, restoration comedies, Shakespearean comedies, um, contemporary uh, comedies, um, farces uh, on stage. But having done Sophie's Choice and then The Big Chill, uh, people thought of me as I was always reading about what uh, this serious actor because I was a trained actor and all that, and I did Shakespeare. And uh, but. No, that it, it was great fun to do so. Um, Fish called Wanda, and then offers suddenly Hollywood um, thought of me as a, a comic actor as well as the other stuff. So that was a nice thing, but it was something that I'd been doing, but just not on film. Um, and again, didn't know while, while I was making it what that it would be popular or anything. In fact, I had a couple of friends who said, "You're gonna." Go work with the Pythons? I mean, that's so English. I don't think... I said, I don't care. I'm working with two of the... Michael Palin and John Cleese are two of the greatest comedians of this century, and I'm going. And it was a thrill. But... Um, and in fact, it was... And John Cleese, the first day, I started doing this stuff, and he said... I said, it's too big, right? He said, no, no, bigger, bigger. Go, <laughs> go, go. He, um, he wrote the part for me, having done a little part in Silverado, this Western that uh, we were in together. He, um, in rehearsals, he saw me doing that thing that I was talking about when I was in high school, sort of clowning around. And he he then knew that there was a latent um, kind of clown there that he wanted to draw out. But one of the things about uh, uh, that role that I was thinking about after I had seen, after I saw The Extra Man last night, w- was... Um, the significance of of being able to do something that is big uh, that is also um sincere and grounded um that's, that's the key how, how do you how do you approach that challenge because i mean comedy is almost is is often almost like a it's almost like a technical exercise it's just like clowning is it, clowning is about performing a performing a routine super ably you know, you you there are certain skills to getting a laugh, um, and uh, and often actors want to you know when they're quote unquote being serious want everything to be profoundly organic, which mm-hmm. is different from say for example doing a funny voice. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I I, I think that's part of the challenge. Um, if, I mean, comedy is binary in a way; it's either funny or it isn't. Whereas drama, you can. F- well, yeah, I, you know, a pretty serious thing, but but you kind of it 
it either works or it doesn't. It's lightning in a bottle. It's all those cliches. But it's really the same thing. I, I think it's the same challenge, which is to make, whether it's Oedipus Rex or Hamlet or, um, or broad comedy, it's however big or whatever style it is, you have to make it as real, as human, as recognizably human as possible. Um, so um, I think you're right that comedy has, it seems technical because it's, there are more, I think, readily observable conventions. It's from vaudeville. We know there's certain things you do that are just funny. But I've seen those things done that are not funny because they're replications of what comedy is supposed to look like right. or sound like. But the, re the real challenge doing comedy is, um, is the same as doing tragedy or drama. When you, you, throughout your career, have moved between the theater and film and um, almost never television, but the theater and film and all, all these different sorts of roles, um, what are the qualities in something that say like, yeah, I'm going to spend months of my time doing this? Ah, it's um, that's yeah, good question. Um, <laughs> it, it's something different, something original, something that will stretch one as an actor, as we say, or not stretch one at all, contract one. Uh, but you know, it's stuff that made you laugh and that you sort of hear in your head, and you feel like, yeah, I get this, and I know how to make this work, um, and it's funny. And it's well observed, and it's real, and it's unique. One hopes. You, you just did. If I'm not mistaken, based on a newspaper article from Montreal that I read, you recently did a you recently did a film in French. Yeah, and that was for so that that's reason. pretty different. Yeah, it was wonderfully different. It was it was like going back to square one in a way. Because I mean, aside from working in France within this whole other different, I mean, a cultural divide that was fascinating to see how they work, how a French crew works and how French... I'd always been intrigued about French acting. There's something so minimalist about most of it and um, they just sort of are behaving. I, I no learned that from watching My Stepfather the Hero starring Gerard Depardieu. You know, I, I missed that, but I heard... That, but that was a foray. <laughs> a minimalist into, into masterpiece. <laughs> was, was he minimal? Oh, I was like trying to be as minimal as His possible. His mastery of English was, was minimal. <laughs> well... Yes, I, I, it's there is that, and probably people's reaction to the French film may be like Amer It's like what what is he saying? I can't understand. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I played an American who's lived in France for twenty five years and speaks fluent French. Very challenging, but wonderful experience working with Sandrine Bonner, who's a, one of my favorite actresses and um, one of the great minimalists. She just there's wow, it's so so small so there's no and I realized in the process American actors we, we sort of want to every scene has to have a beginning middle and end and we want to make a point and we want to emote and all those horrible things and the French are you know, just behave I'm just here you know, it's like you know, the world is just you know blown up or whatever and go up. it's all internal so it let, let the audience can then Imagine there's also they're speaking another language. We don't know what the hell they're saying. We're looking, at, <laughs> we're reading the bottom printout on the screen, and we're, wow, they're just amazing. They're different. It, it was it was unique. So, and when that came along, I, I grabbed it because here's something different. 
It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Kevin Klein. We spoke at the Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah, after the premiere of his new film, The Extra Man, which is adopted from a novel by Jonathan Ames. Let's talk for a second about The Extra Man, which just premiered here at Sundance. It's an adaptation of a Jonathan Ames novel about... um, uh, a young a young man with uh, sort of literary or writerly ambitions who mm. um, moves to New York City, quote unquote, to find himself and and moves in with um, an older gentleman uh, who who literally puts an ad in the newspaper that says "gentleman looking for same uh, to share to share a house." Um, uh, you play the resident of that house. Describe, describe your, uh, describe your character a little bit, because I feel like I would ruin it. <laughs> no, I would ruin it too, and certainly uh, minimalize it. I, I hate describing a character because people are going to see it and take away different things. If I say, "Well, he's this and this and this," the fact that the character exists in a book, an hysterical book that I highly recommend, it's really laugh out loud funny on just about every page, and the things that my character. Henry Harrison says in the book and in the film are so insanely <laughs> witty uh, and uh, from left field and contradictory and uh, just there's something there's wonderful outrageousness about the character. There, there was a moment uh, that I was talking about with um, Ben and Nick or the crew that are here with me at Sundance where uh, Paul Dano's character, the, the young gentleman, is describing his profound emotional connection to his car, which had belonged to his father who died when he was in college. Yes. And your your character kind of listens carefully and pauses for a moment and then with a, with a flourish of the hand says, well, I drive a Buick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's a, he's the sort of guy who's who who looks very at home in a bow tie and uh like a silk dressing gown or a dinner jacket. I think it, it's panache. You know, one has to have I mean, he describes himself as having being so popular among the the, the rich because of his widows, distinctive joie de vivre. Joie de vivre. Exactly. And wit. Wit. It reminded me of Falstaff in terms of this guy who also prides himself on his wit. I'm not really witty to myself, but I'm, I'm a sort. What is it? Uh, the, the something of wit in other men. Uh, Falstaff is prides himself, and he's certainly, uh, arguably, the most witty character in, in dramatic literature. Um, but in the same way, I think Henry Harrison is. It's it's about being brilliant, and and in brilliant in your utterance of of however you express your however insane his ideas are it's it's an interesting contrast between his um his his incredible skill at being an outrageous um charming uh delightful person and the desperation that's built into the character because he's um you know his his lifestyle is built around being the titular extra man, which is to say he's a guy who is charming to ladies that are much richer than he is, and so they keep him hanging around. He's basically a professional like entourage member. Like if he, if you if if it wasn't rich ladies and it was rappers, he would be what they call the weed carrier, the guy who holds the weed in case they get arrested. The weed carrier, right? Yeah, it, it, it's a. I mean, to be relegated to extra man status is it, it, and yet he has a. A kind of pride. I mean, he's not bitter about his. Um, I mean, he, of course, he's very, very bitter. But the 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 fact that he presses on, that he's resilient, that he's found a niche, and 
and is so doggedly um, attached to it and and desperate. There was something sort of Ratso Rizzo about this guy who's just living from one meal to the next, living in squalor, and yet had this idea about style and panache and wit and pressing on, always pressing on, no matter what, you know, and all these terrible things happen, but he's he's got this wonderful survival mechanism um, and wit. And the idea that someone who could be in such dire straits financially and yet feel, well, arrogant, he's, he's arrogant, uh, but, but, but certainly feels proud of his intelligence. But that is what makes one a success. If you can have a bon mot or a brilliant conversation or feel strongly about something and express it succinctly, that's success. And, it's, it, it, so the, and that's kind of an old, it's sort of quixotic in its way. About, it's an old set of values, um, which then the young Paul Dano character is, is drawn to. Do you, so it's, it's an interesting character. Do you think that he's, I would say, comfortable in that set of values, or, or do you think he's burdened by the sort of other thing that's going on for him, which is that he's uh, unable to provide for himself as an artist, as a playwright, which which seems to be you know his his other great passion. Yes, yes, and 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 the real man that in in Jonathan Ames' life that this is based on was a, a playwright. Who did? Who wrote? Was now writing. He would adapt from uh, literary figures' letters, and he'd do an evening of George Eliot's letters to um, the man that she lived with, who became her husband, whose name escapes me, um, or you know the Brownings' correspondence or things like that. But make it into a theatrical evening, and he toured the country with these things. But of course, I'm sure you know he he felt that he did write a masterpiece, and it was stolen and. Um, I'm, there's a bitterness, but there's also what, what's great is that he per, he persists in a level of unreality, a sense that there's a, there is a performance. Life is performing for him, and he is a man of the theater. And I love that line about well, he's, you know, there, there's a rumor he's homosexual. Well, he's you know, he's probably you've got to be a little homosexual. He's a, because what is it? Because he's <laughs> that in way the you theater. can feel more. So they, the yeah, theater people need it so they can feel. So more they can deeply. feel more deeply. <laughs> They become a little homosexual, so they can feel more deeply. Um, and I think he does feel things deeply, although he's very guarded. You know, in the beginning, he says, Let's, is this a conversation? Well, this has to stop. We, I don't want to know about you, and I don't want you to know about me. It's, it's a, there's a mask that he wears that, that he needs in order to survive, not only because just to get through the pain of, of, of this subsistence-level life, but in these, in the highest echelon of, you know, with all the the wealthiest people, it's it's uh, like the prince and the pauper. It's this odd placement of people. And it it looked like it was really fun. It was fun. It was uh, it was very. Uh, when you say, how do you pick a film that you want to devote three months of your life to? It was five weeks, um, all in, and that was a very short schedule. Um, and, um, which is good though. A lot of times many, many good things happen from feeling rushed when you don't have the, the luxury of, 
oh, we can just do 100 takes, and well, let's try it this way, let's try it that way, and well, we can shoot it this way and cover it. You know, no, this is shoot it, move on, shoot it, move on. Um, the many, scene, the, many good the scene, things. The scene where I was putting black, where I was painting my ankles black because I had no socks, <laughs> we, had, we, we, we didn't have time to wipe it off, literally, <laughs> between each take. So we'll do, we'll do three or four takes. Do one where you do, do the outside of your ankle. So we won't see it. So if we do another take, it'll look like your ankles completely. It's like, wait a minute, we don't have time to just come in, just wipe it off, and no, uh, because we, we, if we go, we're going to go a, an hour overtime, and it's too expensive. And so we shot that scene in five minutes or less. And and I'm trying to do the scene, but also, wait a minute, oh, I did the black here. No, I have to do it over here, and because we, we don't have time to wipe it off to start over and do a new take. It was it was. Um, freakishly rushed but um makes you think on your feet you know and you get to wear a bow tie that's cool yeah. well, what a joy <laughs> kevin thank you so much for taking the time to be on the san diego america it was so great to have you it's great to be here my guest kevin klein is uh one of the stars of the film the extra man which just premiered here at the sundance film festival in park city utah that's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's Radio Sweetheart, the show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our music provided to us by Dan Wally. Nick White edits the show, and he produced and engineered our shows in Park City, Utah. Ben Harrison shot video, and in fact, you can see video of all of our Sundance interviews on our website at MaximumFun.org, absolutely 100% for free, thanks to Ben Harrison. Speaking of thanks... Thanks to Eric Bright PR for providing us with a place to record while we were in Park City. If you have thoughts about the show, you can email me at jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at MaximumFun.org. That's jesse at MaximumFun.org. Or you can visit us online at MaximumFun.org, where you can download all of our past shows totally for free and our other shows, like our comedy podcast, Jordan, Jesse, Go, or the Casper Hauser Comedy Podcast. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America.